Have you ever heard a musical artist described as having great chops? What does that mean? Well, the term chops is slang in the music business that refers to an artist that has developed great skills over time, whether they are a musician, composer, producer, or other titles associated with the music business. This is Scott Grimaldi, your host of Got Chops. Join me as I interview one musical artist per episode that I've had the pleasure of either performing, recording, or work with in my career. Plus, I'll be interviewing artists I've always wanted to speak with. We'll discover how each artist developed their chops, listen to their stories, and much more. This is Got Chops. My special guest artist for today is a globally sought-after percussionist and drummer who has successfully combined the rich history of Latin, Afro-Cuban, and world percussion with the drum set and can play in a myriad of musical genres. That's him playing the drum set behind me with the rock band Chicago on their hit song, Beginnings. He has performed and or recorded with the who's who of the music industry including Carlos Santana, Traffic, Steve Winwood, Lindsey Buckingham, and Robbie Robertson, just to name a few. In 2012, my guest was invited to take over the role of percussionist with the iconic rock band Chicago, and then in 2018 was asked by the founding members to take over as drummer. In addition to maintaining a busy touring and recording schedule, my guest finds time to conduct music clinics and teach all levels of students who seek out his help. This percussionist and drummer certainly got chops. Please welcome Walfredo Reyes Jr. Hi, Wally. This is Scott from Got Chops. How are you? Good, good. Happy to be here. Thanks so much once again for granting me this interview. I'm looking so forward to our conversation. Thank you. So let's begin with some things that I was thinking about. As a Cuban-American musician, what does the music slang got chops mean to you? Well, you know, chops to me is having enough vocabulary for every every occasion that you're presented. Uh, Some music takes more technique than others. So, you know, of course... Our goal is not to be limited, but with that, there's a fine line not to use too much salt on the eggs and ruin them, per se, you know. Um, Yeah, so like, you know, just because you own salt and spices and all that stuff, that doesn't mean that with every dish, you got to put it all in in there. 
and it's, it's tempting sometimes. Oh, let me put some pepper. Let me put some salt. And then you taste the eggs. And the problem is once you ruin them, you cannot eat them. So like that happens in music a lot. So a lot of, uh, a lot of the time, once something's recorded or once you actually, uh, if you overplay with all the display of chops, you get really, uh, branded and producers and musicians go, ah, this guy plays too much. And so, um, I have technique. I've seen drummers uh, that I admire, like Jim Keltner, have like an amazing left hand that he can actually go like with the left hand. But I've never ever heard Jim Keltner record that ever. So he always you record what the music takes, and sometimes it doesn't take a lot of chops. And then for some, like for example, there's instance instances in the Chicago uh, music uh, repertoire that some songs need more technique than others. And so you just got to have it ready. And so that's what it means to me. Uh, have your technique as best as you can. So when the time comes, you can use it or not. So when did you first hear of this slang term? I'm assuming maybe from your dad? Yeah, I mean, I, I really, it's a slang that is actually like a modern thing, you know, with the uh, all the, the gospel chops and the this chops and the and the chops. And uh, basically, when I was growing up, uh, it was not a, a vocabulary word. So basically, you just basically continue to uh, improve in your technique, um, whether you're playing in a cover band, air supply, doing uh, you know, ballads that don't take a lot of chops, but take a lot of musicality. And then you get like, when I was growing up, you get like a top 40 band and all of a sudden you're going to do Barry White tunes and you're going to play them a little faster than the record. And if you don't have a right hand technique for Barry White tunes, for example, even if you're playing musically, uh, you got to play that right hand's got to be like, and then when you play live it's less than three minutes song people want to dance for a long time so that's when you really need the chops and so even though if it's a steady rhythm it's not a drum solo you got to have chops for some beats and and uh, when i was growing up uh, you use the chops within the song the music like for example for example ohio player song skin tight fire the the drummer his bass drum foot was ridiculous so so if you're gonna do some of the songs that were humanly played then you gotta have the chops for example like right now um in in some of the songs in modern pop uh you got jazzy tunes you got if you're gonna play jazz you need certain technique you, you play Latin music, you know, one thing is to actually play really fast for like a few seconds. And another thing is to play 10 minutes, something that requires a lot of resistance. For example, like, like a fast 60 note on your right hand for 10 minutes. So some people can do a roll with one hand, but can you do that in tempo with a groove? 
So that's a start, uh, different kind of shops. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I, I love everything that you're talking about. And there's another phrase I know you know about this, less is best. Exactly. When I talk to uh, young, fabulous musicians looking to major music, uh, they're not ready to hear that knowledge yet because they just want to play it quarter note equals 300 beats per minute. <laughs> yes. And, 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 you know, that's a really important thing because I, I've seen um, at, at my age and, and time in my career, there's a lot of youngsters coming in and there's a lot of frustration. Uh, and I think that that's what it is. And, and it's very related to... Uh, to a lot of other uh, jobs, uh, you know, you come to the job as a construction worker or as a chef, just like a musician. So basically a construction worker brings the belt with hammers, everything you need, little screwdrivers, big screwdriver, big hammer, little hammer. You got your stick bag, you got your brushes, you got your thin sticks, you got your mallets. Then you got muffle on your drum. So basically you you come in with an open mind and and hear the room. Then you hear the style of music that you're going to be playing. If you construct a house, it's a one-story house or is a three-story house with a pool. That's a whole other thing. So the same thing with the chef. Uh, we're going to be doing pizzas and hot dogs for the kids. Okay, so I'm going to do that the best I can. But then it's like, okay, we got to do a paella for the Spanish people and the Italians want uh, meatballs and spaghetti with certain uh, uh, dessert. And then for the kids, you know, so now you got to please your the artists. You got to please the audience. So you got to give the best and be versatile and you need the chops if you need them. And if you don't, you don't use them. So like a, that's a discipline uh, so with chops comes like a kind of like comes to mind <laughs> uh, gun ownership. You know, they say, uh, yeah, some guy was telling me the other day, man, I, I learned how to use a gun for protection. So I go and practice it and practice and, and get to know it as best as possible, this and that. And I pray I never have to use it. Right. Right. And so that phrase at the end is very important. Uh, I don't pray that I don't never have to use my chops, but I have them in in uh, in the back. And and sometimes uh, a year goes by and, you know, I have to keep up my chops. But I find that not everything I do needs all the chops I have. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, I, I love everything you're saying. Um I've often thought after hearing you on YouTube and speaking and other things you're talking about in music that uh, you would be a great, great professor, you know, for teaching percussion and just teaching the business of music. So uh, I don't know if you're ever thinking of doing that because you're so busy with Chicago and all the other projects, but you would be a natural at doing that. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I love teaching and I always have since the 80s. I've been doing clinics for my from companies and and teaching. And, and at times I've applied, you know, for some music colleges. I have played drum clinics and percussion clinics all over the world, actually. Uh, the, the thing is, my main bread and butter is touring and recording and, and education is not. So like uh, education, I do between so right now i live in the cincinnati 
there's a Cincinnati University, but I've been offered positions like at USC when Undugo Leon Chancellor passed away. And of course, I had to say no because I'm I'm on the road with Chicago constantly. So it's not fair. I, you cannot be a full-time teacher and not be there. Exactly. Yeah, so like the same thing happened with Berkeley School of Music. You want the position. So at that time, I was living in L.A. And I said, well, there's no way I'm going to move to Boston. And uh, I was on the road with Steve Winwood, I think, or Santana in those days. So uh, maybe one day, you know, and I would love to even at least like part time, like I do that when I'm off. I got students. And uh, sometimes I do I do online. And sometimes, you know, after the pandemic, the online thing became popular. Right. And then uh, and sometimes I got students coming at home. And sometimes it's about like anything. Actually, sometimes um, I have students that are more pros and want to see like, OK, how do you start tunes with the right tempo? You know, so that that's my motto has become when I reflect back on my life, I say, oh, my God, like I spent this is my 51st year in the music business. And, and basically if I have to like, uh, resumed it in three words is tempos, grooves that feel good styles and every, everything else comes after drum solo. Majority of the time they don't want me to do it, you know, but then with Chicago and with Steve Winwood and Santana, uh, they asked me, Hey, you want to do a drum solo? And then I did one and then it went well. And they, you keep on doing it on the show. Uh, but that's not, I've never gotten. And I, I say this with conviction. I have never ever in my life in 51 years gotten a job or a tour or a session because of my drum solos. You were born and raised in Havana, Cuba. Well, n not really. I was born in Cuba and at f at five years old, we left. And I'm assuming that's when your your dad moved the family to Las Vegas. No, to 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 Puerto Rico. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, so like so, Puerto Rico is a Commonwealth of the United States, and um, when we left Cuba, we moved to to New York for a year, and then Cuba the situation got to where it closed down. It was 1960. And then we didn't go back. And then when Cuba closed down, Puerto Rico opened up more because now all the tourists that used to come to Cuba to to go to the beach and to the shows and hotels and all that couldn't do it. So now they flock to Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico Hotel San Juan had a showroom where all the American uh, artists used to go and international. So my dad became the house band drummer percussionist so it was like bobby darren paul anka bobby vinton the supremes later diana ross i mean tom jones i mean you name it they used to go over there so that's my dad uh worked all the shows and my grandfather was in the the latin band and my uncle they were all in the music business so i kind of grew up there and then i started listening to rock and roll and when i was 12 in puerto rico I asked my dad for lessons, and at that specific time, uh, I was in the eighth grade, and I started practicing and taking lessons from my dad. Bam! My dad got offered a job to go to Vegas in 1969, 
so basically he went to Vegas and then the family followed afterwards. So by 1970, we were in Las Vegas and I was in the ninth grade. Interesting. And did your dad take you on his gigs to see what he does? Oh yeah. You know, um, sometimes he took me because he couldn't leave me anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, I would just, in those days, the, the younger I was, I mean, I loved the music, rock and roll, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the grassroots, you know, shindigs, you know, you name it. Uh, but, but I wanted to be a veterinarian, you know, I, I saw, I saw doc, Dr. Doolittle and, uh, I said, oh my God, that's what I want to do. I want to communicate with animals. So, uh, but still I love music and I play percussion for fun. And so it wasn't until I was like 12 that I realized, um, you know, drums, I, I'm not believe me like i think my dad has more passion on drums than i do i i didn't hear the drums and started playing in pots and pans and all that i actually saw the drums because my dad was a drummer if he would have been a bass player or, or a guitar player i probably would have done that uh i wanted to play the music that i love that's it I wanted to play the music that I love. Sometimes I sang the melodies. Sometimes I learned the song, but it could have been guitar, bass, piano, drums. So the drums for me became the vehicle to be in a band to play the music I love. I didn't mind if I kept a good groove that feels good and the people really loved it and made the artists or the, the band sound good and feel good. Then I had the best seat in the house. And I was getting paid, and instead of getting paid, uh, paying for a ticket in the in the front row, I would get paid to hear the songs and keep the beat so the singer can sing and all that. So that was my initial uh, why I wanted to play drums. And so when my dad said, "Oh yeah, yeah, you're not gonna play a beat, and then uh, that's it. I mean, you gotta study correctly." So he put me with a metronome a practice pad and uh, um, the Kessler book uh, with, on rudiments and reading music. And I said, dad, you sure Charlie Watson Ringo did this? And go, <laughs> no, my dad said, I don't know if they did, but this is what you have to do. So, <laughs> so, you know, I, I started, you know, in a way I'm so happy that he forced me to do that uh, because it was the metronome. Like I hated that thing, you know, and, they, and then it became my best friend because uh, in a room by, by yourself, the metronome is your most honest teacher. So basically, you know, you, you, you give a lesson, you practice the rudiment, and then you say, how fast can I do this rudiment? Well, you put the metronome, say like in 120, and man, you do that comfortably, and then you put it at 130, and you go, oh my God. I cannot do that. So then you do the same thing with the lesson. You give your dad a lesson like I did, and then he'll go very good. Now up at four notches. And I went, okay, I got to go back and <laughs> mm -hmm. I got to practice another week. Oh my God, I'll never going to finish this book. <laughs> and so, you know, so that's uh, when I learned that um, if you want honesty, and, um, and, and, you know, and with that being said, um, I know musicians, uh, friends of mine that 
our guitar players and singer they have the little like for example our guys with chicago they uh they they're warming up in the dressing room like they're going ah, and then they have the little um harmonica with the tunes with the notes to see if they're in pitch that's right with the right notes so if you as a musician practice uh relative or trying to get perfect pitch why drummers don't practice relative tempo perfect tempo so if you hear a song you can go yeah that's at 135 around there or that's a you know that's 120 and you know that's like walking tempo running tempo you know the heartbeat tempo yes. you know that you know your tempos because that's part of your your job absolutely and you're the engine of the band and everyone's relying on you counting them off well you know and sometimes uh, uh and a lot of drummers out there might not you know I, I got a lot of drummers that probably haven't been this is not a cut down or a judgment they haven't been in positions of professional big productions and big tours and they don't know they think they're just at, at a bar you basically start a beat and it might be too fast and too slow and it's just loose you know but um when when an artist tells you like this is the song and like lindsey buckingham and he sets up the delays and all that at certain tempo and you realize okay it feels good say at 124 and they go oh my god i love it so what do you think i'm gonna count at the at the show 124 and then you know you count it every night and time goes by and all of a sudden one day like Lindsay or even some of these guys uh steve winwood hey wally what what tempo are we doing uh higher love and go okay let me see my list okay the album is at this tempo and right now we're doing it at this tempo go oh okay can you maybe a notch faster so if it is you know whatever it is 104 can we do it at 105 he goes okay i'll count it out tonight at 105 and if he likes it i can tell you right now i work with steve winwood for 10 years um uh can't find my way home was like 87 for 10 years wow wow and and you know like and some of the songs were the same tempo and he loved it at that tempo why do it faster or slower exactly exactly and the uh, people in the audience they remember uh, they might not know musical terms of you know quarter note equals whatever but as soon as you have that groove yep that brings back memories exactly and if it feels good they remember what feels good and you know, they don't know the the technicalities of if it was an a sharp or uh, what key was it or if it was like uh, you know like a little faster than the record for example i can tell you right now like in, in our show beginnings is a little faster and people don't know that they loved it they love it is it the exact same as the record well no we're doing a different arrangement it's a little faster and uh let me put it like this when i saw chicago in 1974 they were playing it very different than 1970. So the, the musicians grow and they change. And, That's right. And it happened with Santana and have artists. They don't want to, they don't want to do the exact same thing over and over and over. They, they, they're artists and, and songwriters. 
And sometimes, you know, like we're going to do, for example, like coming up a show in November 17 and 18 with a lot of different friends and guest artists uh, playing with Chicago, a TV show we're going to do. Wow. Uh, and then we're going to do some old songs like uh, Listen and Southern California Purple. Oh, wow. And, and, and Robert Lamb told me already, I go, man, I heard Listen. I well, this, That was one of my favorite songs when I was in the eighth grade when I bought CTA and I listened to it and, and, but Robert told me pervade him. He goes, Oh, great. I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what you're going to do with it. And meaning, yeah, forget the original version. What are you going to bring to the table? But, you know, so for me being a fan and at the same time, the drummer for hire uh, is conflicting, right? Yes. Yes because i'm going wait a minute like you know like the same thing with beginnings when i uh, was going to play beginnings i i, I want to play what danny and seraphim played mm -hmm. but when I, when i came into the band tris was there and he was really like i mean grooving the song like he took it to a place where uh it was not cta kind of fusion rock it was like R&B, Chicago dance, you know, and so you felt like dancing. And I always told Tris that he goes, man, I cannot stand still with you playing. And so <laughs> and so so he brought this element to it. And Robert, which wrote the song, wanted less drum fills. Oh, wow. And more like just play the groove. So, of course, even Tris was like we talked about it. He was a little conflicted because, you know, he was a fan of the original version. Right. And but now you you're hired by the, the writer. So the, the question for me is, who do I have to please here? The, the Chicago bots that they're all like know everything about Chicago and the music and everything. Or these guys at, at that time, it was Walter Parasader, Robert Lamb, Lee Lockney. And Jimmy Pankow and the manager, that's who hired me. Right. So what is it that you guys want me to do? And when Robert said, yeah, less drum fills, more groove. Okay. So that's when uh, the same thing happened to me with Steve Winwood. The same thing happened to me with Santana. He, uh, Carlos wanted some specific things that Michael Shreve did. And then he liked what the shuffles that Undugu played. And he loved the way that Graham Lear did certain things. And, and then it's like, okay, so I have to listen to 30 years of Santana and do this, but don't do that. Play like what he did, but don't play what he did here. And then after a while, you start playing the song and you play something and he looks back and goes, I love that. <laughs> so, so now you got to leave it, you know? And then what happens is when, when people say you morph it a little bit to your signature, but always be true to the song, you know, I'm not going to overplay or do anything to feature me by using the music of Chicago, which I respect so much. I'm going to do anything to bring the song to the limelight. You know what I'm saying? That's the most important thing. It's not about you, it's about them. That's right. Um, it's like that uh, Netflix uh, special, it was called uh, Gun For Hire. I'm sure you saw that. Oh yeah, exactly.
Let's talk about my favorite band, of which you've been a member of since 2012, and the reason I became a musician, the rock band Chicago. We have a few things in common, a lifelong interest in their music, and dreaming of the day when you would receive that phone call to play with them. And Wally, you're living that dream. I understand that the first album you purchased as a youth with your own money was Chicago Transit Authority. How did you hear about Chicago and what made you buy this album? Well, you know, it's really crazy because this is something that I have no explanation for. And sometimes I'm kind of paranoid, like not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. And and I, I, I kind of like question, like, why me? God, like, what do you want me to do exactly? Because, you know, it's really crazy. It didn't really manifest until I was already in Chicago. And then I started to, to look back and teach, actually, and started to look back instead of just moving present and future. Here I am today. Tomorrow I got to do this. I got to get this down. I got to learn this. I got to get better at this and then future tomorrow and then the next day and then November, then next year, you know, so basically I was that kind of guy, you know, get better. What am I going to do? Do I have jobs in December? Uh, you know, and that kind of thing. And don't look back. But then I started looking back and going, my God, somebody told me, Jesus, you've been, so you started at 16 professional. So you've been at it for 51 years. And that sounded like, what? I'm old. And so like, so, you know, so once you start really analyzing your life, you go like, oh my God. And then interviews like the one I'm doing right now, when you actually, so yeah. So, you know, it, it was like, I love music. I asked my dad for lessons and I was just a fan of the music that was on the radio. And the music that was on the radio back in the like late 60s, it was a mixture of FM. So basically you had from uh, Stevie Wonder, you had Tom Jones, you had Elvis, you had Led Zeppelin, you had, um, uh, yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Chicago, Blood, Sweat and Tears. Then later on, you know, Osibisa. Uh, you know, and, and bands, and it was like, oh, my God, English bands, the Beatles, the Stones, uh, uh, you, know, you know, and and so, you know, you start loving it all. And so, uh, but I remember, you know, I used to mow lawns for the neighbors and my family in the weekends, used to make extra bread. Sometimes at Christmas, I used to play percussion on the beach and sidewalks with friends and then people used to pay us some money so you know i started learning like wow i can play this instrument and some song songs that they love and we can make some money not a lot but enough to buy some candy bars and a coca-cola <laughs> you know and so that wow that's pretty cool you make people happy and they pay so uh so you know i had that concept already and then all of a sudden I remember I was uh, uh, sitting my my brother, my my youngest brother. It was a baby at that time, and I had to put him to sleep. And I used to turn my my parents' radio on, on the on the rock station. Now, with that being said, my mom was a salsa, my dad was a jazz guy, so I, I had a lot of influence also from a lot of Latin music that I was hearing. 
and then the jazz big bands and and small combos like from Mel Lewis and Thad Jones big band, Louis Belson, Buddy Rich's band, um, you know, um, Charlie Persip, uh, Miles Davis with Tony Williams. So, you know, all that music was really, really intricate, but I didn't really understand it, but I understood my music. And so, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Cream. So, you know, I started mowing lawns and I, um, and I had some money in my pocket. So I put my brother to sleep and I turn on the radio and beginnings came out. And that guitar, acoustic guitar. So at the beginning, the first time I went like, oh, my God, that sounds kind of more like Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, you know, I thought that we we're going to go into another sweet Judy's blue eyes, you know, kind of thing. And folk, Bob Dylan. And then came this drums and then the bass line and the horns. And I went, wow, that's like my dad's music with the horns with the rock of Jimi Hendrix and acoustic guitar and percussion at the end. Holy cow. And my brother, my little brother was getting sleepy and then he went to sleep and the song finished and I got up and I took my bicycle and I went to Jamco and bought like the, I told the, the person there, it goes, there's a song called beginnings. I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea who it is. <laughs> That's who plays it? If it's a girl or a guy. Oh, oh wow. And, and then the, the, the person goes, yeah, beginning. So that's a, a band called CTA. CTA. Okay. What the hell does that mean? And so like, then later on, I found out it was Chicago transit authority. So I bought that album and I basically like, looked at the album while the whole album was playing i looked at the at the guys you know each guy like okay this is the keyboard player this is the drummer this is the bass player you know and well every song okay the guitar player is taking a solo so i looked at terry kath so basically i dissected and devoured and digested that album and then the second album i bought was cream disraeli gears sunshine of your love and the third album was Abraxas, which was the second album. And then I remember a friend of mine came in and we were like just talking crazy because I was in Puerto Rico and my friend came and knocked him at night in the window. And I says, hey, man, you think we can actually learn how to do tie-dye t-shirts so we can sell a lot of them because there's a <laughs> festival in New York City. It's going to in Woodstock. And, and where? But that's not New York City. He goes, yeah, no, it's in the north. And Santana's going to be there. And this band is going to be there. And I, I go, oh, man, I don't think my parents are going to let me go. Uh, and then so at that time, my dad was in Vegas. And I was listening to CTA. And then uh, we're selling everything to actually ready to go to Vegas. And I remember it was the same uh, weekend something like that is the lunar landing on the moon yeah and i open up i open up the the paper and the center of the paper was michael shreve playing the drum solo photo with his uh, ludwig set with santana and i'm going oh my god that's the band you know like man i would love to play with them and now fast forward I play with Santana. I love Michael Shreve. He's a good friend. I've got a lot of 
uh, indirectly lessons, and I call indirect lessons just because somebody is telling you something and you learn a whole lesson from it. You didn't pay for the lesson. You just basically listen and absorbed and apply the words or the music to your life, and that's a lesson. So, you know, I don't know why, but, you know, I played with Steve Winwood, which was like Traffic, was another record. And I remember saying, what would they name their band Traffic? And and uh, then I found out many years later, you know, it was like the circle that goes around, you know, like on a, on, in London. Yes. You know, the, the so the traffic, you know, so basically that's what we are. And then sometimes we make an exit to the right. Sometimes we have to go to the left. Sometimes wherever we go, it's like, we are in life's traffic, you know, on and on and on. And Robbie Robertson of the band, which I love, Leave on Helm, you know, he was the funkiest and played drums like the guy from Rare Earth. Those two of my favorite uh, singing drummers. Uh, and then, of course, Phil Collins is a whole other thing. But as far as just keeping a groove like uh, Rare Earth, I just want to celebrate and, and Pete Rivera and then uh, Leave on Helm. And then because of Robbie, when I was with Steve Winwood, uh, the, one of the last tours that I did in 1999 with the, 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 the big band that Steve had on the road, we played the House of Blues. And then I looked up when I went on stage and I looked up and there's a leave on helm in the in the in the rails, just basically like just looking at me. <laughs> I, was like, Whoa. I was so conscious I couldn't play that show like I, I was like. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, he didn't say that he was coming or he just basically, I think Robbie told him, you got to check my drummer, um, Wally. And then he basically was in New Orleans and then he came to the House of Blues. And, and then I, I didn't even see him after. He was just like there the whole show. Like, like he didn't even take a glass of water or anything or went to the bathroom. He was just like completely hypnotized, like staring at me. And I don't even know he didn't clap or not clap or he just didn't leave. He basically was just like, okay, I'm going to watch you until the, from the beginning to the end. <laughs> well, it sounds like he was taking a lesson from you from what I can tell. Well, I'll tell you, it was intimidating like as hell, you know, because it was like, I didn't know if I would have met him or something, he was just there and I was going, okay, this is one guy that I learned from and inspire me, you know, to always play for the, for the song. Yes. Play the beat for the song. So the song can shine. Don't use the song for you to shine unless the song wants you to shine. You know, mm. there's a part of the song. Okay. This needs some rhythm out outlet or something. So there's a loop here, or a, a montuno or something that is great it needs more drumming or whatever but the song will dictate that not you if i can circle back to uh, chicago were you able to see the original seven band members perform live in concert yeah actually eight because uh, laudio de Oliveira. so when i actually saw chicago live i was in las vegas and in those days in las vegas this is like a little quick history that a lot of people don't know uh, so I started working in Las Vegas very young, but in the seventies until I would say later on, 
you know, my generation, we were like in the ninth grade, 10th grade. By that time, 1974, I graduated from high school. So I was 17, 18. Chicago played the convention center in Las Vegas because bands, rock bands, didn't play the strip. So the strip in downtown Las Vegas was all like tuxedo, you know, big bands, Checky Green, Dean Martin, right. Frank Sinatra, you know, Sammy Davis, uh, that kind of thing. And the country was mostly in downtown. So the rock and roll, anything that was bell bottoms, long hair, hippie rock, grand funk, the guess who, Chicago, not in the strip. Uh, so they played out outside the strip in the convention center and in another venue called the Ice Palace. They put cardboard on the ice. And I saw Poco, the Eagles. I saw um, Blues Image, you know, so so that was the the show. So I went to see Chicago on New Year's Eve. And I remember having a date. And uh, back then uh, there was no drum risers. Uh, Chicago came in and it was all on the floor. Everybody was on the floor. Yeah, it was a carpet like Jimi Hendrix, Cream. You you, you saw you seen the, the photos. Uh, the drums were not on a riser, so I uh, so I couldn't see very well the the drummer. So I told my date, "You mind if I go and check out the drums?" You know, and she was she was talking to another girl. So I figure, you know, I figure she was they were talking. Okay, be right back. And then I went like to the front, 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 you know. So the bass drum was about, I don't know, eight feet from my face. Wow. You know, Danny Serafin and then Laugide Oliveira that I knew from Sergio Mendes before he joined Chicago. So um, so they were they were jamming. And of course, I was like, oh, my God. So all of a sudden, the concert finished. It was like after two hours and I went. Oh crap. So I went back. <laughs> that was the last date. <laughs> she looked at me like, what the hell? I'll never go on another date with you. I should have known that that was going to be my life. You know, <laughs> music first, every, everything else second. Uh, so needless to say, that was the end of that relationship. But, you know, I absorbed Chicago and I went home and I, told my dad all about it so my dad started chicago also united my dad's music with mine because my dad never cut down my music and i try to understand his so he turned me on to r blakey elvin jones john coltrane uh but you know it just went over my head it ju i just didn't really understand like how do you dance to this where's one so like i didn't really understand it at that time but when my dad heard chicago and blood, sweat, and tears, and then later on, cold blood, and um, also uh, he loved uh, Emerson, Lick, and Palmer. He told me, you know, that's in five eight, and then they go to a seven eight. I had have no idea what you're talking about, but you know, so my dad kind of like started listening to my music, and I started listening to his music because he kind of like took some of that stuff and turned me on to uh jazz greats you know and when and when we were in las vegas i remember that you're listening to that tarkas by emerson lick and palmer he goes yeah so those guys are three 
They're playing odd times. Right. I want to take you to see this band tonight. They're playing at two in the morning. You better stay up. And I said, okay. And and so he took me to see Don Ellis band, which was a big band with Ralph Humphreys on drums playing odd times. There was nothing in four. <laughs> so I went like, wow, this. And then of course they had, they were like long hair and the tuxedos, they were flower power on their shirts and the keyboard player you couldn't see his face because it was like totally long hair on the keyboard I, I go that's my type of big band your brother daniel he originally played percussion with chicago before you were offered the position so how did that come about that you replaced your brother well you know as it happens in in music you know once you get thrown into this pool of you know, you work and when people need uh, percussionists, you, you're always going to recommend somebody that you work with that not only had all the manners on stage, but off stage, because there's two hours on stage and 22 hours off stage. So you cannot recommend somebody that is a great musician, but then it's, it's a disaster personally with, with on the tour bus traveling and all that. So, you know, out at that time, uh, you know, my brother was already uh, working as a percussionist. You know, he worked with a lot of bands, Earth, Wind and Fire, Sheena Easton, you name it. And and uh, so he was working a lot with the band that started out, you know, uh, was starting uh, Zach Brown Band. And they were calling him more and more and more to do tours. And then um, uh, I was with Lindsey Buckingham. So Lindsey Buckingham had a, a situation where our guitar player had needed a back operation so we didn't have the guitar player and it and it was he was a very important figure he was kind of like the musical director uh and then lindsay decided at the last minute to cancel the remaining of the tour so i was freelancing so danny was with zach brown band but at that time even though i knew tris and bolton and lou partini with chicago and i was a big fan of chicago always follow them and all that um all of a sudden uh drew hester which was playing percussion with chicago went on to go to uh, joe walsh so what happened is uh they called danny to play percussion for drew and then uh but uh, zach brown was working a lot more and more and more and so uh, at that same time you know they say that timing sometimes nothing happens and then sometimes a lot happens and you got to choose make the right decisions and then from that outcome happens uh so like danny decided man you know i cannot do a week because i have to go with zach brown and then if i'm not with zach brown then i can do this gigs but i cannot do all the chicago gigs and uh you know so he he found out that I had just, my tour just canceled. And so I was freelancing. I was actually playing a lot with a band called El Chicano. They had some hits in the seventies. So, uh, tell her she's lovely and you know, a bunch of, so I loved the band too. So I was doing all kinds of stuff. So in my schedule was El Chicano, a wedding lessons, a recording on Wednesday, you know, uh, do a clinic. Uh, another gig with El Chicano, 
And then I got a week with Chicago. I got to learn the songs and percussion. And after the week with Chicago, I go and then hopefully go back with Lindsey Buckingham. And so what happened is um, Danny got really busy to where they made him a member with Zach Brown. Oh, wow. At that same time, I was coming in, not even with my percussion. I came in, this guy's don't, Chicago doesn't sound check or doesn't rehearse. Basically, their motto is, we've been playing this for 50-something years. You learn it, I'll see you in the downbeat. So I met the guys 20 minutes before the show. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, yeah. No, that's the way it is with everybody. Nobody sound checks or rehearses for nobody. And so, like, so basically, you know, I had learned the show. I had some cheat sheets in the conga, so nobody saw it because there was no music stands and charts and none of that. So basically, you memorize quickly. And that's one advice that I can tell everybody. The same with Santana, Steve Winwood, no music stands. Basically, just memorize and get the stuff under your skin. And then all of a sudden, um, I was there doing the show and and I'm looking at the show, I'm looking at Tris for cues and this and that. So they went well and then um, nobody ever told me anything. And so um, so then we did the second show and then I kind of threw the sheet sheets away because I kind of knew the music, but I had to pay respect to Drew and Danny, what they were doing, you know, because they, they were used to that, you know. And so, you know, I don't come in with the attitude of like, oh, wait till they hear me play no 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 i i i i gotta go over there and make the band uh like if they never missed the percussion and so i'm playing the parts that the person left so the train can continue and not derail you know what i'm saying right you know i'm not gonna do no new tracks or fancy stuff no no, no. it's basically the train's moving forward let me make it easy for you guys to continue move forward and so uh, all the parts are there that you're used to. So then during the second show, I was playing and I was paying more attention, smiling and having fun. And then I did the third show. And after the third show, uh, Robert Lamb all of a sudden opens up the door to our dressing room, uh, which is Tris and I. And Robert came in and I, I thought, oh, my God, here we come. He, OK, here we go. Now I have a list of, you know, he's probably going to tell me, OK. So in this tune, don't play tambourine. And in this tune, uh, what are you playing? Can you play this? And yeah, what? So I thought it was going to be like a notes. So then he came in and, you know, really close. And I was in my dressing room in the anvil case. And he goes, hey, Wally, um, you're okay with your brother, right? Like, I mean, you know, he's he's really busy with Zach Brown. And you you're playing the show like, like if you've been playing with us forever and i said i said well i have been playing with you forever since cta <laughs> so you know to give you know uh, uh you know uh, danny's younger but you know when danny was little i was in the eighth grade i already knew your stuff and then i follow all the music so believe it or not i've been playing with you forever and he goes well if you want to hop on the bus and stay in tour with us i know your brother's busy with zach brown so we would love to have you so hop on the bus man i went like okay so then he left and i'm i look at tristan going what does that mean exactly that's funny <laughs> and tris was going like man i think he just got high you just got hired 
And I went, really? I mean, that was like, hop on the bus, that's it? And so basically the next day I called the manager and and uh, I guess this is what Robert said. And the manager said, yeah, we already, I already talked to the rest of the guys and this and that. We'd love to have you as a percussionist with Chicago. And I went, oh, okay. So then, you know, we discussed money and this and that. And, and all of a sudden, you know, like, I started going on the next leg of the tour, talk with my brother. My brother said, oh, man, we're great because you know what happened with Zach Brown? He goes, what? We're doing a record, a tour, and I'm part of the band. And I'm going, well, wow, congratulations. So, like, everything worked out well. Lindsay didn't go back on tour. So everything was – and that's how I got the gig. And then later on, you know, I've never differentiated – very much about percussion drums it's basically acoustic guitar electric guitar 12 string guitar or b3 and piano acoustic piano or electric piano fender roads you're either a keyboard player a guitar player or a percussionist right i mean you know you you tell me uh, i need like robert lamb one time for one of the records hey wally i need you to play stuff on this but i want stuff that i never heard and go, I go, like, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, I don't want congas, bongos, cowbells, tambourine, triangle. I mean, we've had this for years. I want sounds that nobody can identify. So I started sampling stuff. <laughs> I mean, anything that sounded good in my kitchen, in my car, anywhere, in the, in the, in the bathrooms of the dressing rooms when there's a lot of echo hit the trash can with an echo. Go, oh my God. <laughs> that's great. You know, so like, uh, that's one thing that is, is really popular today because we have a lot of different sounds and libraries and all that. And people don't realize what it is. So with that being said, you know, when in 2018 I was playing percussion and I did my first CD, the Wally world, and I was playing drums with a lot of different bands. So I was playing drums percussion all the time. So when uh, the situation happened, it was a personal situation that uh, the bass player and Tris decided, you know, Tris has been in the band for a long, long time. He remarried, you know, he had different needs and his life was at. And so basically uh, he resigned and it was like, oh, my God, it was like a complete chaos. Is Danny Surfing coming back? Are they auditioning drummers? Isn't that all I know? I had a gig. I was playing percussion. So whatever happens, here I am. And then one time I was in the eating at, you know, uh, uh, catering and Lee Lockney comes in and goes, Wally, when are you ready to jump on the drums? And I went, what? And I go like, you mean like when? And he goes, well, just in case, be ready. And I go, well, shoot, man. Like, can I wait to actually jump on the drums on my own drum set? Like, are we going to rehearse or something? So basically like what he was telling me is, is the same road, but you're going to be driving a different car. So do what you need to do to learn the car, but we're driving forward, you know? And so like, uh, so I started learning the show on the drums during the day. And I, I started with the band on drums at 2018 in January. Did you ever have a rehearsal, you know, doing all the songs of the show? Because it's a completely different type of head. Yeah, well, actually, we were doing the Chicago 2 
album in its entirety. I saw that. And so we needed to rehearse a new singer, a new bass player, and so and then Danny on percussion. And so so Danny did the first engagement in the Venetian Hotel in February 2018. But then Zach Brown got really busy. And so they said, well, you know, we need a, a guy that is like steady all the time. And so there was, believe me, a lot of percussionists came to mind, this and that. But, you know, Raceless, I had worked with many, many times in my own band in L.A. sessions. And he he was a Chicago fan. He had played with Danny Serafin's band. So he definitely it's not like he needed to learn the music. Mm -hmm. So uh, he basically subbed Danny. And then things just didn't work out like Danny going back and forth, back and forth. And so uh, they asked Ray, can you do the whole summer tour? He goes, yeah. So basically he worked out and uh, learned the show really well. And then, you know, with Ray, Ray you know, you have to have certain uh, professionalism. Like, for example, when I came on percussion, I was doing what Danny and Drew did, even though I knew what Lauju de Oliveira did. But these guys, when they, when they left off, this is what they were playing. So I took over that. When I came on drum set, I took over what Tris was doing, not what Danny was doing, because Danny quit like in what the the early, I don't know. Tris was there for 28 years. Right. So Tris, and they were happy. You know, Tris didn't leave because they were unhappy. Tris was playing his ass off. And I was playing my ass off on percussion and they were happy. The changes happened because something different, personal, not musical. So basically I took over what Tris did and Ray took over what I was doing. So that's the most professional thing that you can do as a drummer. If uh, when I did that with Steve Winwood, I listened to the tunes and, and live shows. And when I went, uh, actually, back with Santana in 2017, Dennis Chambers was playing and couldn't do this uh, leg of the tour. I had to relearn everything, not like I did it in 1990, 93, 92, 90, like Dennis was doing it. So, you know, you take over how these guys are functioning comfortably. Now, if they tell you, hey, man, we're so unhappy with this drummer. But that was not the case, you know, when I joined Santana, when I joined Steve Winwood, it was like, you know, it, it was the what it was. It was like, we need a drummer, but this is the way we've been doing things. Now, little by little, if you do something, like I said before, and they ask you, hey, man, can you do something different? Okay. That's when you, so basically you got to know, number one, how the song was played on the original. Number two, how the song has been played lately on live touring, the tempos, the grooves, and the styles of the song, because it might be different than the, than the record. And the third, you got to have different possibilities. You might never, ever play, but if they ask you, in a second, you got to be ready. So those are the three challenges, you know, like the record, like the live tour, the late, the latest. And 
how else would you play the song if they ask you, but they might never ask you. So at home, like I, I saw the other day something that I wanted to comment. My brother, with all due respect, if you play like this with Michael Jackson, you would not last one bar. And and the, <laughs> and what it, what it was, it was like my my saying: using the music to show yourself off, which is not how I make made a living for 51 years. So this guy was doing the famous beat of like a Billy Jean with Undugu, right? Which was like a steady. And millions and millions of people around the world danced to that beat. So this guy was going, okay, well, Undugu already found the groove. He did the work. He found the, the right tonalities and everything. And I'm going to spray all over it. So what are you telling me? Like, if you would play like that in front of Michael Jackson, he would go, stop next right <laughs> right so that's when i see like people send me stuff of chicago and 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 they're overplaying and and they ask me what do you think you see i'm ready to play with chicago i'm going like man you got a lot of technique beautiful technique that's the only positive thing i can say would you mind talking about how you approach two classic Chicago songs that are demanding? One is the first song of the first album that you have, Chicago Transit Authority, that's Introduction, composed by Terry Kath. I mean, especially the instrumental breakdown after the vocal. You know, the alternating patterns of three and two, and then... How did you go about that? Were you given a chart? I mean, you obviously listened to the recording. You played it your whole life, but now you're stepping into that position. And then if you could talk about uh, I'm a Man, how uh, you and Ray are featured, but it's mostly a, a drum solo and then you're trading off. So how do you put something like that together? Well, those are great questions because, well, let me start by saying that I've never seen a Chicago chart and I've never seen a Steve Winwood or a Santana chart. So, wow. Yeah. In this business, um, I think the only Chicago charts I see sometimes is when we're about, like, for example, the Christmas album. There's nothing, there's no precedent. So, it's basically like there's air, silence, and then somebody's trying to compose something. So, you follow, excuse me, uh, you follow a, a guideline, which is the core chart, the leak the lead sheet so I can see where am I going to be playing my rhythm. And so I had it memorized before I even was before Chicago. So like I already knew the song, uh, did I know the time signatures and all that? No. So actually up until recently, I, I was actually looking for something and there was in, in Google, and it said introduction and I kind of clicked it and all that. And then the chart comes out and it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, if they would have put this in front of me, I would have flopped. Uh, because it's like, what is that what it is? I had no idea, really. I remember hearing an interview with a, a Jimmy Pankow who arranged, you know, all the horn parts, as you know. I mean, what a master he is. Oh, yeah. I mean, as a trombonist, a songwriter, um, 
even as a singer, but his arrangements are just, you know, to die for. But I remember the one time him talking about how Terry came to him and said, Jimmy, um, I want you to uh, transcribe, you know, these lines that I have in my head. And as he said, the words were, it was a very daunting task. I'm a man. I, I I play with Steve Winwood. Now Steve Winwood's version is is more uh, simple, like uh, it's more just play the groove. And uh, so when I actually, uh, you know, a Chicago version, I heard be- before I even heard Steve Winwood. So I played all the versions of I'm a man with Steve Winwood, and then I played now with Chicago. And of course, there's a solo that opens up and we created our own thing with Tris and I, we had something else and we try to do it a little different every night to entertain because it's not a crowd full of drummers. If Ray Islas and I play a drum clinic, maybe we expand a little bit and take it somewhere else.
but this is more an entertaining drum solo. Oh, absolutely. And I had something that I wanted to mention is that besides the great musicianship and the play between the two of you, you know, you have such great stage presence. And from the audience, it becomes a great visual experience. I mean, I was always taught, and I believe this, that if you please someone's eyes, you know, they see you and it's, you know, fulfilling, they're going to now open their ears and then you've got the whole package and they want to come back and hear and see you all the time. That's a very good point. And actually I taught that to my daughter, my daughter Liliana de los Reyes, that she's the percussionist and singer with George Benson. But I used to tell her when she was in college and to the kids, you know, like to the students that were there, he goes, you know, when you play live, well, two things I used to tell him that, I don't know, it's just my philosophy. He goes, just make believe that half the audience is blind and half the audience is deaf. Mm, wow. So for the blind people, you got to sound great. And for the deaf people, you got to look great because they only have the eyes. And so like, basically now you actually have to create the emotion with visual and with listening you have to create the emotion with audio so today is important when you actually when you're playing a, a recording in your room uh who gives a damn you might be nude or with uh with shorts or a pajamas and you still will sound great and it goes only audio but if you have a camera in front of you that's a whole other thing so we're living in an era today of visuals and audio. And the other thing I used to tell them is, and this is, uh, I'm thinking of Louis Belson taught me this, always play like it's your last day on earth. So basically, if you're playing in a club and there's only five people, you're going to play your best. You're going to play your ass off with uh, and only five people. But you're going to play your ass off in front of five people or 50 or 500 or 5,000 or, or 500,000. So the, the, the size of the audience doesn't mean, oh my God, I got to do a really great job. No, you're going to do a great job in front of five people. You know, it doesn't matter. You're going to do a great job even if you're there's nobody in your studio and you're going to cut tracks for somebody and there's nobody in front of you. So basically, you will always do the best that you can be on stage and off stage, and then you might die. And then be be proud that on the on your last second of life, you're going to go, God, I gave it all. I gave it all. I gave my best. I never, you know, nipped anybody from, you know, I gave it all. And so... You know, and that's that's it. You're I'm not in competition with people trying to be Neil Peart or Buddy Rich or no, because I cannot be Buddy Rich or Neil Peart. But I tell you what I can be. I can be better than I was yesterday. And that's 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 where I'm going for. Well, you certainly have some great words of wisdom. Bravo. So, Wally, if you could uh, kindly pick two different musical selections from your two albums, uh, Wally World and Jamming at the Baked Potato, that you feel best represents what you do as a percussionist or drummer, that I can filter into this interview as you speak about them now. Obviously, you know, like all of them 
are a representation of me, you know, in different moods and different styles and all that. But, you know, for the drummers out there, mostly, uh, I think the Wally world, I get more asked questions. Uh, well, actually, I, I'm going to change uh, the tunes. I was going to say on the on my CD, Wally World, the last one, uh, but I'm going to actually uh, pick uh, Abacuando, which, by the way, when I gave the album to Robert Lamp, he loved that tune so much that he features it before the Chicago concert. Wow. So that, that's, that's in the audio playback before we go on stage. And everybody thinks it's in the odd time, and and it's not. It's all in four, but it's uh, from a a, a rhythm, uh, Afro-Cuban rhythm called Abacua, and basically it's called Abacuando. So that's the second tune of my uh, Wally World CD. then on my jamming out the baked potato there's so many too because we play covers and um i think like you know there's a tune called the sauce it's kind of latinish and then there's a drum solo and or the conga solo so a lot of people that that was great capture live so that's a that's a great tune and we we go through different styles within the tune
for my listeners, uh, these two CDs are fantastic. You've got to go listen. Thank you. You're really going to understand more of this gentleman and what he's doing. I'm working on another one with a trio in Cincinnati. Oh, good. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be a trio, even though there's more than just three instruments. Uh, you know, I'm playing some percussion also. But, you know, it's anything. everything you hear on this next CD is going to be the three of us. And so uh, it's coming along, and it's just covers of tunes we love. Maybe that's the title of the CD, Tunes We Love, because <laughs> I keep on saying it. So what is it going to be? Oh, just tunes we love. <laughs> that's great. Well, I'll be on the lookout for that as well. And I understand that you were also hired to give conga lessons to the actor Javier Bardem in the movie Being the Ricardos for the Desi Arnaz scene Babalu. How did that come about? And what was that experience like? Oh, my God. So, you know, um, I guess this lady in L.A., contractor, you know, my family, my Cuban side of the family goes deep. They were all Cuban musicians, mother's side and father's side. So uh, that whole, you know, my, my, my grandfather worked with Miguelito Valdez, which was the original Babalu. Wow. In fact, Desi Arnaz took the inspiration and copy Miguelito Valdez with the conga and all that and brought it to Hollywood. So basically, you know, uh, so if you Google Mr. Babalu, you get pictures of Miguelito Valdez that worked with my grandfather or Desi Arnaz, which, and so like when the movie was being done, I remember it was in the middle of the pandemic and I was with my wife and my birthday and I got a call for conga lessons and I, it could have been anybody, you know, hey, man, like, um, blah, blah, blah. Do you give conga lessons online? It goes, sure. It goes, how much do you charge an hour? Well, I charge this much. And then I, I, you know, I send little videos and clips depending on what we go through and recommendations. Oh, OK, well, let me get back to you. And then she called back and said, well, we want to hire you to give conga lessons online because with the pandemic and um but this has got to be really secret because it's like a movie and it's an actor and I go, sure. I mean, it doesn't matter to me if I give conga lessons to a child, an actor, a doctor, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, it's what is it that you need and how can I make you better? And so, uh, so uh, all of a sudden she goes, well, it's for this actor, Javier Bardam. And I fell off my chair because I, I know his work. I, I know his work very well. I mean, I actually from, uh, 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 he made a movie of uh, being gay in 1960s Cuba uh, that is really deep and uh, and true story. And then I have all the movies in Spanish because I understand, you know, Spanish. And then, of course, um, you know, he's married to Penelope Cruz and they have done great work together. So I was like, you got to be kidding me. And then she told me all about it. So the first call he was doing the the father uh part of little mermaid in, in those days uh and he was in london so uh i was supposed to zoom and and the producer was supposed to like be on the zoom and you know they 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 was they they didn't know me well so they didn't want to make sure you know he they wanted to find a great teacher that javier was comfortable and so all of a sudden I was waiting and just to, for the phone call, this and that. And, and the email comes in and Javier goes, 
in Spanish. He goes, hey, man, forget about this Zoom. Can I just FaceTime you? It's easy for me. And I, he, I go, sure. But what happens once you FaceTime, there's no, uh, there's no record or you cannot play it back. So there's no receipt, you know. Uh, so basically, I, I said, yeah. And so he FaceTimed me from his hotel room in London. He had a beard because he was filming Little Mermaid. And uh, and so like, uh, so we started talking and it was like, man, I like I knew the guy forever. And he he just grabbed a chair <laughs> from the from the apartment. And we started just talking about conga technique and all that. And he he loves to play drums. He's a he's a heavy metal guy. He loves heavy metal, and he took his ten-year-old uh, son, I think, to Metallica in Spain. <laughs> wow! So we're just talking drums and all that, and and I said, man, you know, when you get to Madrid, so I'm in Kentucky. We're FaceTiming, and I go, when you get to Madrid, you're ready. Uh, we got to get you a conga, so like, uh, so you can start the technique and all that. Uh, so then he got a conga and then we FaceTime lessons. And then I actually put my camera like on my chest as I was looking at the congas. So he had, cause it's difficult to teach somebody when they're in front of you, you know, you're looking at the right hand, but you know, you're looking at your right hand and it, sometimes it's hard to decipher unless you actually are in the same position side by side. So how can I create an image for him to look at his hands and look at my video? So I put the my phone afterwards. Uh, I send them videos of the patterns on my chest. Wow. So now you see, like right now, if you when if you're listening, if you actually put your right hand and your left hand like in drum position, that's the video. That's exactly the video that you're looking. You're not looking at me in my face. Right. So I sent him this. He learned really well. He was incredibly fast on getting everything. And then, you know, we recorded this whole thing. And, you know, he had to mime what I played. And the musical director hired me actually to play on the track of the movie segment. So I play. Yeah. So I recorded and. And, you know, he was so nice. All of a sudden, people are telling me, uh, you know, this is the pandemic. So we're like almost like towards the end. And and uh, people are telling me, hey, man, you're on uh, Jimmy Kamel. Hey, man, did you he see uh, blah, blah, blah? He, Javier Bardam just mentioned your name. I'm going, what? Wow. So he was actually telling the story that I just finished telling you. Like every uh, interview uh, on 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 the Insider, uh, Jimmy Kamel, The Tonight Show, in Spanish. So it was like, and then I got credit credit on the movie. So you know, I'm really proud that that it was with him, and because I admire him as an actor, and I can now see why he's such a great actor because he's one of these guys that completely gets possessed into the part kind of like a like the guy from elvis that said that he had trouble leaving elvis yes yes back, back to normal life that's something that happens with actors it happens to us too it happens to us as drummers and then i've done tours which is very jazzy like with joe sample that my arms get out of shape 
because it's very sensitive trio brushes thin sticks light soft and then i go to a raw gig and i'm out of shape so that's the dilemma with drummers and actors you we gotta like all or nothing give it all on the part that we're doing and then you gotta exit and get back to you like who who are you well, what do you play what what do you play about what what who are you for real and so like that's it we're we're like actors we actually i'm 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 actually doing chicago right now and the minute i get back home i gotta continue working on my trio that has nothing to do with chicago the drum set is different the symbols are different the sticks are different and the music is different well that's what makes a great artist and you are a great artist where can my listeners find you on social media and can purchase your music and merch online and also share with my listeners any upcoming live performances with Chicago or other projects you'd like to announce? Plus, I know you're still taking private students online or in person. Yes. Yeah, so I have, you know, online is a lot of work for me because I don't have a online person. I don't have a media person, a manager. I mean, basically like a self-contained guy. So I have Facebook. Uh, you can find me, uh, I think it's W Reyes Jr. And um, uh, I have an Instagram account, a lot of music stuff. And then on the storyline on Instagram is my everyday thing. It kind of goes and disappears. And it's all about everything, you know me, like cuisine, travel, opinions, uh, everything. It's more like I don't do music 24 hours a day. I have other things that I do, family, a human being, taste, whatever. But on my Instagram account and my Facebook and my YouTube channel, it's all about music and videos and, and, and maybe feature other people that are my influence. Like today, I just put Tour Copeland uh, a little post because it was an inf influence of mine. And so, uh, so then, uh, I also have an instructional DVD that came out in 2004. It's called global beats. And that led to my first CD Wally world. So global beats came out first and basically explain, explain a lot of the drum beats that went into Wally world CD. And then, uh, so Walfredo Reyes junior.com is my website and, um, my Instagram and my Facebook, I announce a lot of the, the tours, mostly Chicago, but all my other extracurriculum gigs that I'm doing in clubs and clinics and stuff like that. And, um, uh, you know, Chicago right now, we're actually on until the end of November. We're doing a great show that I'm so excited. And I think the band is too. It's going to be a TV show filmed in Atlantic City, 17 and 18 of November. And we're going to have a lot of the music of CTA is going to be played by guests. So Steve Vai, I think, is going to do Poem 58. Wow. Uh, Judas Hill, Robert Randolph, uh, King Kingfish, uh, Daughtry, uh, Robin Thicke. So we're going to do Listen, Southern California Purple. The whole uh, song of feeling stronger every day from the beginning, which we don't do on the show. So that's something that is going to be really great. 
to do it live and then document it on TV. And then there's a lot of stuff that is going to happen for next year, but I cannot say anything yet, but it'll be announced November and as the year ends. It's going to be a very exciting 2024. The train, Chicago train, just keeps on moving forward. And God bless these guys that their passion and responsibility to keep this music going because these guys can retire. You know, I said, like, man, I've did 56 years of my life. I'm in, in the Bahamas, collect the checks. But no, that's when you die. I mean, that that's that's when my dad says musicians never retire. You retire when you die because music is not like a profession that is like a just like a skill. Uh, I mean, music is like your transformation and a language that you are mastering and it's part of you. So when you say a musician, yeah, I'm going to retire. You know, you, when, when, when are you dying? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so, you know, yeah, you might not uh, do a lot of things, maybe not, not as much travel or, you know, maybe you're not a band leader, you know, for whatever reason, but you know, you can retire as a musician. No. No. Uh, I, I always tell my students and my kids, there's a beginning in the, as, as far as being a musician, be careful because there's a beginning, but there's no ending. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. I mean, really, it never ends and you never arrive. That's why, you know, music makes you humble. Oh, you think you got it, don't you? This has been a big thrill and a big treat for me. I, I can't thank you enough. And I honestly say that after hearing your stories, I'm sure my listeners will all agree that you certainly got chops. Well, I, I'm still working at it, believe it or not. And that's the beauty of, of being a, an artist and working with artists like the guys with Chicago. You know, like I go by Lee's room and he's practicing. Lee Lockney of Chicago. You go by his room and you hear... He's practicing his horn. Then Jimmy's writing charts for this new thing. And then Robert is like, hey man, have you heard this? And he's into the drum and bass stuff and and new stuff by obscure artists that you never heard of. And these are these guys. They 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 haven't arrived. They're still at it. So it's a lesson for me. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Well, that's so uh, reassuring for me to hear being a, a big fan. I'm going to try and make that Atlantic City gig. I think that would be spectacular because I love, love, like yourself, all those deep hits. Yes. Uh, and, and and if not on that gig, I'll see you uh, next year for sure. We'll hit New Jersey and give me a buzz and we'll get together again. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, Wally, thank you again. Have a great gig tonight with Chicago. All right. You take care. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and could hear why my guest got chops. You can follow my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Anchor.fm, and stay connected between episodes on Instagram at gotchopspodcast. Join me on the next episode when we discover why my next guest got chops.